To support this show, become a Relax Your Grid superfan on Patreon. It's just $2 a month, and you'll receive exclusive digital content with every episode. Plus, I'll send you a Relax Your Grid sticker in the mail. Click the link in the show notes to sign up. Welcome to Relax Your Grid. I'm your host, Matt Brown. In this episode, I talk to bluegrass fiddler Bronwyn Keith Hines about her formative fiddle years, her brilliant solo album, Fiddler's Pastime, and her experience with Mile 12, the Boston-based bluegrass band she co-founded with B.B. Bowness. Bronwyn is currently touring with Molly Tuttle and Golden Highway, so be sure to catch them when they play your town or favorite festival. Here's my conversation with Bronwyn. Bronwyn Keith Hines, welcome to Relax Your Grid. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm going to start out with the award that you most recently won because it's so impressive. So you are the 2021 IBMA Fiddle Player of the Year. Congratulations. Man, thank you. That's, yeah, that was such a, such a surprise and like huge honor. And I just, I still can't believe it. <laughs> it's well-deserved. And I think the coolest thing about it and the reason I wanted to start here is that you beat a slate of finalists who have all won the award before. So Jason Carter, Michael Cleveland, Stuart Duncan, and Deanie Richardson. Like these are these are not nobodies. These are fiddle icons um, of very of a couple different generations. But you're you're in this esteemed company, and I just think like there's no better recognition in our world of of bluegrass here um, than for you to beat those people in in this particular contest. Oh man, yeah. Well, yeah. I don't know. I don't, yeah. It's it's just cool to be to be um, you know among them or. Thought, thought of, I guess, in the same category as them. And, you know, I don't, I don't really feel like I beat them, but, uh, you know, it just, it makes me want to work even harder. You know, I feel like it's just like encouragement and sort of like, I guess the recognition from peers and stuff just makes me, makes me want to, yeah, work even harder and, and try to, try to deserve it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I totally get that. So I read that the first fiddle style that you played was traditional Irish music. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly, you know, I started like I started out um, doing Suzuki when I was real young. I was like three when I started and that's just what I ended up with. And um, my Suzuki teacher would teach me fiddle tunes on the side, just kind of regular American or whatever fiddle tunes. And I was really a lot more into those than the Suzuki stuff. So after a couple of years, my parents just asked me if I just wanted to do fiddle lessons. And actually the first fiddle teacher that I had was um, this lady up in Vermont. I was living in Vermont at the time um, named Beth Telford, and she was a Cape Breton fiddler. So that's kind of the first thing I started out with. Um, And then we moved to Virginia when I was 10 and I was, you know, trying to find the nearest thing to Cape Breton fiddling. And there wasn't anybody doing Cape Breton fiddling in Virginia for whatever reason. So that's when I got into Irish fiddling. I guess I went further with Irish fiddling. So I kind of kind of say that was more of my background. And then at what point did bluegrass take over as the thing that you were the most passionate about? Bluegrass kind of took over in college. Like um, I, I went to Berkeley College of Music and it kind of just stumbled in there right uh, at the first year that they started that American Roots Music Program. So like this whole influx of amazing like bluegrass and old time musicians was coming in and, and I, you know, it just kind of the bug kind of bit me just hearing all these kids um, just being so great at that stuff. So what was your first year at Berkeley then? 2009. Before we recorded, I we were trying to figure out if you and I have ever met before. I remember visiting Berkeley a bunch when Dominic Leslie and Sam Grisman were all students there. And I taught one of Matt Glazer's fiddle classes one day. But I can't remember that I ever overlapped when you were there. I know Hannah Reed was there around the same time. And I don't remember what year all of this was, but... Right. I mean, that would have definitely been like the same, the same era for sure. I think, I think maybe those people were like a year or two ahead of me. So like, but yeah, I was definitely in school when they were in school. And yeah, it was a good scene. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. So rich. And, and it's produced band after band. And I want to get to Mile 12, a band that you've, you were a part of for quite a while and made a huge impact with. But I'm, I'm fascinated by this Irish and bluegrass journey for you, even though it started with with Suzuki and Cape Breton, because about a year ago, a new private lesson student approached me and said he wanted to take Irish and bluegrass fiddle lessons with me. And so we did a couple of weeks where, you know, we did, we learned Jerry's beaver hat and then the first of the peacock's feather from the Frankie Gavin and Alec Finn record. And then we talked about the difference between Irish and bluegrass, which 
is quite large when you get into the nitty-gritty. And the next week we tried Lonesome Moonlight Waltz and it was off to the races. And it's been a year of bluegrass ever since. And I just thought, we get pretty nerdy on this podcast. And I wanted to get your opinion of what are some of the similarities on the fiddle in particular between bluegrass and Irish? And then where does it diverge? Because I'll probably make him listen to this episode. And you're the first person I can talk to who's really had a foot in each. Cool. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's, you know, just... They both got like, you know, Irish music is like a dance music, right? And and bluegrass is definitely more of a performance music, but it comes, you know, one of its roots is Irish music and old time music, which is, you know, it's got that dance stuff. So like, you know, the instrumental fiddle tune part of bluegrass was definitely an easier thing for me to jump into than the, uh, you know, the singing songs and stuff and playing a playing a hot break on a singing song. Um, so that's kind of where I started sort of um, bridging the gap was like, playing tunes that I'd known as Irish tunes, like Temperance Reel or St. Anne's Reel, and then and then sort of starting to improvise on them. And, you know, I guess then then they were bluegrass tunes. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think one of the one of the challenges was was just trying to get a different feel. You know, I guess one thing I sort of realized was like the Irish fiddle eighth note feel is a lot more like dotted, I guess you could call it, or like uh, the the notes are shorter too. They're less legato. Um, so like when I was trying to make it sound more bluegrass, I had to like just have no space in between the notes and kind of have all the notes connect and be a lot more even. And that was you know just kind of a weird thing. Um, I mean, there were just a lot of a lot of different things in terms of technique that I'd sort of you know I think you can I, I had I developed a certain way of playing when I was playing Irish music that wasn't didn't work as well when I was trying to do bluegrass like in Irish music you're not it's very rare that you'd get out of first position seems like so I you know I didn't really bother to like work on playing higher positions or or double stops would be kind of rare too I mean some people do some some of them but you know so just all this technical left hand stuff um was like definitely lacking (laughs) Did you also find that you had to like delete some of the technical left-hand stuff that's in Irish, but not in bluegrass, like cuts and rolls and all of that ornamentation that we don't actually use in bluegrass? Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's like a whole, a whole way of, you know, kind of articulating notes and stuff. I feel like Alison Krauss's playing has like a lot more of that stuff than, than a lot of other bluegrass people. So like that stuff comes really easily to me if I'm trying to like mimic the stuff that she does. Cause that's, you know, my left hand is so used to doing those little things, but yeah, a lot of times, yeah, I have to leave those out. Although I hear Stuart Duncan doing some of that stuff too. Like, I, I don't know, people, people do a little bit of it, but yeah, it's different. The thing about Stuart is I feel like he, he's good at bringing those, those ornaments in on non bluegrass projects. Like he's, mm-hmm. he's played on so many records and soundtracks and in, in environments where he's not just trying to conjure up, um, Kenny Baker or like the, you know, the long line of bluegrass fiddle that he's a part of and that you're a part of, um, where he gets to, you know, evoke the old world in some way or another. And he has all of that ready and waiting, but it's not, it's not going to be in there when he plays, you know, a duet with Bela or, Mm -hmm. um, some of this other, you know, more just American material. He's shocking in how good and authentic he can play celtic music it's like bonkers i've only heard him do it a couple times i remember he did like a, a set at ibma with gnome just like one of those duo things and they did like a scottish set with like a strath spay and it was like oh my gosh you said like you sound like a scottish fiddler and because yeah that's not a, that easy for bluegrass fiddlers to go that direction When you when you got to Berkeley, did you did you study with someone in particular who really like threw you into the deep end with bluegrass fiddle, or how did how did your pedagogy go? Like how formal was your bluegrass training, or did it was it like the jamming that happened outside of the class? I feel like there were like lots of different teachers that gave me different pieces of it that really helped, and then the jamming was kind of the thing that like you know made it all come together. Like you know I studied with Matt Glazer. Um, and he had a lot of really helpful things to talk about as far as like fiddle tune improv. He's got this whole system you probably know about it, you know, the uh, how to sort of like uh, improvise on a fiddle tune by breaking it down to its skeletal melody and then adding back in notes in different ways, but keeping the skeletal melodies. So it still sounds like the tune. All of that was helpful. 
And then Daryl Anger got to study with him and he had a, some really helpful things to say about sort of um, like learning some of the basic kind of um, bluegrass songs that are that are so standard in terms of their melody and chord progression that if you learn them a couple different keys and then how many other songs that you actually know, like <laughs> he kind of made that click for me. And then I studied with um, John McGann, who was a great, a great teacher and played mandolin and guitar. Um, and he was he passed away while we were at school, but but for a couple of years, he was like one of the most helpful teachers in terms of helping me improvise. We'd uh, we'd play a game in our lessons called um, uh, "What's That?" <laughs> or w- <laughs> yeah, but uh, anyway, we, he he would improvise, and I would just stop him and be like, you know, what you know, what's that? What's that thing? And yeah, he was just super helpful. And then he'd have to show it to you. Mm-hmm. Then he'd have to show it to me. <laughs> I love that concept. I'm going to I'm going to do that to some of my students. At what point did you start to understand the fiddle's role on a singing song? Cuz as you said, that's a completely different animal and for me it took I have some very vivid memories of where it registered like, "Oh, I have to do something completely different or I have to not play or I have to do do you, can you remember what the formative experiences were when you learned to to back up a vocalist and then come forward and shine on a, on a break. Mm, yeah. I mean, I think playing mal 12 definitely helped with that. Like, you know, just having the experience of getting to work with the same people all the time and just try different stuff out on these tunes that we would rehearse all the time. Um, so I think that was probably the first, the first time I would start to feel comfortable doing that. Um, yeah. <laughs> but also I think um, even more recently, you know, I, I like during the pandemic, it's been, I've had so much to, you know time at home and, kind of used it to do a deep dive into a lot of the Bill Monroe and Flat and Scruggs and Bluegrass Album Band stuff. And, you know, having the time to like learn a bunch of that fiddle stuff and analyze it, you know, definitely helps. Who who have you been drawn to in that time? So like if it's Flat and Scruggs, it's maybe Paul Warren and the Bluegrass Album Band, we're talking about Bobby Hicks. But like, do you find yourself like um, with a, a fiddle spirit animal that's helping you with some of these ideas or? I mean, I've been really digging the chubby wise stuff with Bill Monroe. Okay. I, yeah. I just like the groove of it. It's just so swingy and like simple, but effective. Yeah. But yeah, a lot of the, and a lot of the Benny Martin stuff with Latin Scruggs too, is just, you know, epic. I don't know if it was on Instagram or YouTube. I saw that you posted during the pandemic, you were learning solos, not just from fiddle players, but from the John Hartford gentle on my mind recording, you learned those two breaks that are right next to each other. The second one is is Buddy Emmons pedal steel solo, and and you posted yourself playing along with that. So obviously, you've gleaned a lot from learning from other instruments playing on songs as well. Yeah, I should spend more time doing that. But yeah, I do love Buddy Emmons, and I've tried to learn some of his solos. Um, but yeah, some of that steel stuff is really hard. It, it like has a huge range, so I constantly find myself running out of space, or or the jumps are so weird that it's just hard to get those to happen. It's such a great idea, though, because it gets us out of like fiddle brain, like only thinking of things that fiddle players have done or only imitating fiddle players. Mm -hmm. I notice that if I try and take something from the fiddle to the guitar or the banjo to the fiddle that I, you know, even if I mess up, I'm, I'm messing up in a way that I wouldn't have before on a new instrument. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's awesome. So you mentioned mile 12 and tell tell me a little bit about how you came to play in that band and. I, I know you're no longer touring with them and you've got an exciting tour uh, coming up with Molly Tuttle, but where did Mile 12 start? Did that, did that start out of your Berkeley time? Close. It started about a year after Berkeley. I was like just living in Boston, hanging out, playing local gigs and teaching. And um, me and the banjo player, BB, uh, you know, we're friends, probably friends before I knew some of the other guys as well. And we would kind of talk about like, oh, we want to like tour nationally. We want to like go to all the cool festivals and be on the road. And like, how are we going to do that? You know, not really getting a lot of calls. (laughs) Um, So, and I feel like there is this history in Boston of like bands starting. There's so many bands that start out of Boston. So we were really good friends with the guys in the Lonely Heartstring Band. And, um, you know, I think we got to kind of see the inside out of how that band got started and like, you know, how they got to start playing nationally and it was really inspiring when we were like well hey if they can do it we can do it like we just have to find some other people so we uh we talked Nate 
the bass player and Evan, the singer, into into just like starting a band. And it was just a four piece for like two years, I think. Um, there just wasn't really a mandolin player in in the Northeast that was available. Um, but yeah, and then we eventually got David to join on mandolin. And uh, yeah, it was, I mean, it was amazing. It was like such a, such a cool time in my life and a super hard decision to, to leave that band. You know, it's like some of my closest friends. Um, but yeah, so we had so many good adventures and made a lot of good music. But yeah, I just, you know, there's, I think the pandemic changed a lot and living down here in Nashville, it just kind of, there's other other things I want to explore. You and I only set up this interview a couple of days ago. It's going to air in March. Um, but just through the the joys of, of digital communication, this all came together very quickly. And I, I listened to all of the Mile 12 records again, but mostly I've been just on repeat listening to Fiddler's Pastime, your solo record, which we're going to get into in a little bit. And I wanted to ask you about your experience in the recording studio. And this could be with Mile 12 or the solo album, or if you have others as well. But the theme of this podcast is is on quantization or the lack thereof. So when it's helpful to have a click track or not, when it's helpful to auto-tune or not. And some guests, we get really deep into it, and other people, we just kind of skate right by it. But as someone who has formal training, went to a, a renowned music school, has been in a nationally touring band, and, and now... Um, You've got this this critically acclaimed fiddle record. What's your experience been when recording in terms of using a click track or not, or using auto tune or not? Where do you fall in that philosophical debate? Oh yeah, totally. Um, the last couple of recordings I've done, like my album, um, the last the last EP that Mal Twelve did, and the full length City on a Hill, we didn't use any click tracks. Like while we were recording, the only click that we'd have was right before to give give a tempo. So we'd try to start the tunes off at the same tempo so that we could switch between takes if we liked different parts of it. Um, so that's all the only thing we did there. Um, and I, you know, in my opinion, you know, I feel like you everyone can get a better groove without a without a metronome. You know, if you're um, if you're pushing and pulling a little, I think that can be exciting. And 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 the worst thing is to hear someone chasing a metronome and like deliberately slowing down or speeding up, like. Um, but that being said, on the first Mal 12 record and the like very first EP we did, um, we definitely did use a click track. And, I, you know, I think back then um, we hadn't been playing bluegrass as long together or individually. I think we needed all the help we could get. And, um, you know, so but I do think those those albums suffered a little in terms of like just spirit. And, you know, I think they're maybe sound a little more static. And then as far as auto-tune, those first, like the first EP and onwards definitely had a fair amount of tuning to the vocals. Um, I think in in the City on the Hill record, I don't think there was, I could be wrong, I don't think there was any tuning, but, you know, I think if, you know, if a, if a word or something isn't in tune, they would just find a different take of that word. So just a ton of comping can work the same way. Totally. How do, where do you fall in terms of the click? Well, let's change the name to a metronome right now. Um, just in your own practice and as a, I know you're an active teacher, like is the metronome a part of your, your practice and, and the practice of your students that you assign? Yeah, totally. Yeah. I definitely use a metronome to just work on lately. It's been like working on speed. I feel like if I'm working on groove or anything, I'm just like playing along to, um, to a record or something or, or just trying to play by myself and be groovy. But like, if I'm working on speed, I think metronome is a nice thing. Um, yeah. And so I tell my students the same thing, you know, and I think when you're starting out, it, I don't know, one of the, one of the challenges is just staying at the same tempo. So that's definitely helps my students with that. You know, you know, the common thing is to slow down on the hard parts and speed up on the easy parts and stuff so that kind of makes them conscious of that. For sure. I had a lesson yesterday with one of my students who's doing both bluegrass guitar and bluegrass fiddle with me. And we were, we were on the metronome for almost all of the music playing portion. And my goal with everyone is is to use the metronome as little as possible. But as you know, as a, as a teacher, it's often the thing that reveals those moments. Like, where is it that I want to slow down? Or where is it that I'm going to speed up because I'm so excited that it's easy again? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I try, not, I try to get my students to not be scared of the metronome. You know, there's so many that, that don't want to do it or just find it really really humbling and you know but I think I always encourage them to just push past that that and like recording themselves practicing you know it's like the other big yes. thing. yes 
Did you, when you were a student, were you assigned the metronome? Because I know for me, like, I felt like I was being punished, even though I, <laughs> I had amazing teachers, but I had this weird idea like, oh, if they assign the metronome, it's because I'm bad or I'm wrong. like, what was, what was your experience? I'm trying to think. I'm sure I was. I don't remember in particular being assigned the metronome. I remember being assigned to like be able to play faster. <laughs> like I remember um, I took a less actually a semester of lessons with Wes Corbett, who, you know, became a friend and stuff. But he was teaching at Berkeley. And even though he was teaching banjo, like anyone could sign up for a lesson or, or a semester of lessons. And I, you know, I just thought we'd work on like music stuff and it was awesome, like working on improv. And but I remember he said, you know, I was like really struggling to play fast. You know, I was like 120 was like capping out. And he was like, dude, like I play regularly, like 140 and like above, like you should probably <laughs> be able to play faster. So he, I guess he did assign the metronome in that sense. And it worked because let's, I feel like that's the best transition possible. Um, your new album, which I love so much, it's been on repeat. I think we've listened Aww. to it six times in the past 24 hours in my house and in the car. Uh, Fiddler's Pastime. Wes was the producer on the record. Yeah. Yeah, he was. Yeah. He was awesome. Like when I moved to town or when I was talking about moving to town, he offered me to like a place to stay in his house. And so I rented a room in his basement for a couple months. Um, and that was just like so nice to have have a place to stay with someone I knew in a in a town that I didn't know. And we'd like, we'd play fiddle and banjo like almost every morning. We'd like, you know, get up oh. and have coffee and like jam for a little while. And then we'd go off and do our own things. But that kind of, you know, that kind of made me start thinking about, you know, how great it was playing with him and how much I valued his musical judgment and input. And yeah, he was like the only person I could think of that I'd want to produce that record. Where did you make Fiddler's Pastime? I recorded it at Ben Surratt's house, uh, home studio in East Nashville called The Rec Room. And how how long of a process was this? Was this just like a couple days or did it stretch out over weeks or months as people were around and available? I think it was six days of full band tracking. Um, I think I took a couple more days to go in and do fiddle fixes and overdubs. So it was probably like six, like eight, eight or so days of uh, like total studio time. And then Dave Cinco mixed it. So he took a couple days and we, that was like, you know, I recorded it right before the pandemic hit. It was like January and February of 2020. Um, so then when we were going to mix it, like we didn't do it in person. Cause that was like March and stuff was getting, getting whack. So we kind of, Dave had this awesome way of like kind of broadcasting it over some super high speed thing. And he and Wes and I all listened from our separate houses and we're able to like talk in real time on the phone about like changes we want to hear. It was, yeah, it was way cool. That's awesome. And Cinco's actually going to be a guest on the podcast. I'm waiting for the new Punch Brothers record to come out with, and it will, that'll be out by the time your episode airs. Cool. But I didn't want to talk to Dave on the record until we can talk about um, Hell on Church Street. But I'm, I, I thought I remember that Cinco was involved. Did he also master it or did someone else? Uh, no, David Glasser mastered it. Oh, so like just like the all-star team, you just got every <laughs> all, all the best, all the best people involved. Um, uh, needed all the help I could get. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know that you did, but it, it worked out. I'll, I'll put it that way. So I would love to just kind of talk through the album and then and then see where that takes us. The first track is an original of yours, Hendersonville Hop. What what inspired this particular tune? Because you wrote it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wrote it. Um, I was on tour with Mal 12. And I kind of knew that I was wanting to make a solo album. I think it was like the fall before we recorded. And I was like trying to come up with tune ideas. And we were staying at somebody's house in Northern Virginia, I think. And I had like a morning free. And I was like trying to practice in our minivan, which was not working super well. The bow kept hitting the ceiling. And I was like all cramped up. <laughs> but I, I think I came up with the A part then. And I was just, I was actually in that A part, like that first lick was kind of based off a pedal steel lick. So I don't know. I, probably came from pedal steel transcribing amazing see it all pays off when when you when you do that when you sit down to just like i'm i need to write a tune for this record i'm gonna make do you have a process that you replicate or is it just kind of an organic thing that like you're you're playing your bows hitting the the van and and notes start coming out that sound like a pedal steel um no it's not that qu quite that organic i think i like I think I come at my tune writing with like an idea of what type of tune, like the vibe and, yeah. the, and the key probably. So I was like, oh, but you know what? This tune was in A originally. So I was like, I want like a happy major tune in A. 
So I wrote it in A and then Wes actually made me change it to E like four days before we recorded it, <laughs> which sound, it did sound way better, but it was like a little bit of a challenge. I believe it was a challenge, but I have to say like starting an instrumental, well, mostly instrumental bluegrass record with a fiddle tune in E is like such, I feel like that tune is such a moment. And like the fact that it's an E and like the energy of E is so different than A, like mm-hmm. A is as you know, like growing up playing fiddle tunes from these different dance traditions and then bluegrass, like we have so many A tunes in old time music and um, Irish, not as much for A major, but still like A is a tonal center we know really well. E is like such a bluegrass key. And and it has it has a quality that is just like unmatched, I feel like, in an instrumental. So I'm so glad to know that that the tune didn't start in E, but that it ended up there. Because I feel like that's part of the character of the melody to me as someone who never heard it in A. Right. Yeah. It's much better. And like in A, um, it kind of just, it was in the high range of the fiddle only. It was basically on the A and E string. So the E kind of brought it into like the middle range, which... Right. Because you had to drop it down. Yeah. It's cool. So since we're talking about your originals, I just want to I want to work through a couple of them. Um, the the one that's very different than that is is the waltz, Michelle's waltz, which is like way more plaintive. It's in the key of F, um, although there's a lot of like there's, you know, setting up the D minor thing and going back and forth between the relative minor and the, and the major. Is Michelle a particular person in your life? or? Yeah, she was my cousin. Um, and yeah, she actually like passed away a couple of years ago, which was like super tragic. Um, so I wrote a, wrote a tune for her. melody I was just kind of messing around like I wanted a D minor waltz like I love you know Lonesome Moonlight waltz and a lot of those type of type of waltzes I was just kind of messing around Wes really helped me with the chords on that one he would help with the chords on all of them he had some really cool reharm ideas but especially that one I feel like the chords brought it to life in a whole different way that I I wouldn't have thought of I was wondering about that because the the B section like I was I was listening this morning one last time, imagining I was playing along with you, and I kept being surprised, like, oh, it's an A, oh, it's like it, it kept, right? it kept not being the chord I expected, which um, is great on an on a original tune in this era. Like, we don't want to just try and make a, a tune that sounds like it was written in the seventies necessarily. Right, totally, yeah. Wes, like, yeah, I feel like I always have the most obvious ideas for chords, and Wes, Wes <laughs> is always like just turns it upside down completely. And, yeah, it definitely makes me rethink like, all right, yeah, you don't have to, like the, the long note that you're hitting doesn't have to be a chord tone. It's probably cooler if it's not a chord tone, you know? Right, that's such a good point. And I want to divert from the album analysis for a second and just talk about what it's like working with such a such a great producer. Because one of the things I do is I produce records and before I get signed on to produce an album, there's always this thing of like convincing someone that it's worth having a producer. because. Mm. Yeah. If you haven't had a, a true producer on your album, you might think, oh, that's a lot of money. I It's just too much. And it's hard to quantify. Like if you pay a producer, 
this much money, then your album's going to be that that better. But can you, you you've already talked about like you had this great relationship prior. Um, he really helped with the harmony on the album. What else? What else is the value of Wes in particular, like working on this record? What What did he change or bring to the project that might not have happened if it had just been you and the other players and the engineer? Ah, uh, man, I just felt like Wes brought kind of like a musical sophistication to the whole thing. Like I, you know, I know that my, you know, my background and go to is kind of more the trad, you know, trad grass and. And and his and his go to is more like jazz oriented stuff and like really new acoustic stuff. Um, yeah, so just the harmonic, harmonic stuff. I mean, he was just such a good sounding board too. Like I brought a lot of other original tunes that didn't make the cut, and it was just great to have somebody who was you know I trusted their opinion and I knew that they would tell me if they thought something was not worth it. You know, so he would be like, no, that's that's not the best you can do. Um, yeah, totally, and he it was helpful just having him to, to talk through like instrumentation and like players on, on different songs. Um, like on that tune on the song that Critter sang, like I had had the, like I was thinking that was just going to be sort of a more traditional, like Hartfordy, like banjo, you know, whole band kind of song. And, and he and Critter were like, like Critter kind of helped produce that one too. It seemed like, but um, he and Critter were both like, ah, this has to be like stripped down and, and I'm, I'm so glad they like <laughs> insisted on that because it turned out super magical. I thought I heard that Natchez whistle blow I thought I heard that Natchez whistle blow Well, it blowed so low, it blowed so sweet I was laying my head down on Blue Street I thought I heard that Natchez whistle blow Well, I thought I heard that Natchez whistle blow Thought I heard that Natchez whistle blow Well, it blowed so low, it blowed so sweet I was laying my head down on Toulouse Street Well, I thought I heard that Natchez whistle blow Or the noise of trucks grinding through the gears. Oh, I thought I heard that Natchez whistle below. I love that that track, Natchez whistle, and Critter's like finger picking the guitar, and it's like very yeah, like it's very spare, and it doesn't have the full band hard driving sound, which makes it such a great compliment to the tracks that do it. Like it makes everything stronger to have that contrast. Totally. And then in terms of just like being in the studio to have someone, um, yeah, I guess he was playing as well as producing. Um, but to have someone be like, all right, that's, you know, that's good enough or you need to keep going with something. Um, it's just super helpful because it's so hard to make those decisions when you're also trying to deal with like playing the music. Totally. Did you did you end up giving Wes any direction as your banjo player? Like, even though he was your producer, did <laughs> you also give him some like notes on the banjos? Like, oh, I loved it when you did this, or can you roll here? Like, man, he didn't need that. Like, he yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he did the exact right thing. But also, the thing that he insisted on having since he was playing and producing was having someone else in there taking notes. So we hired my friend Carolyn Kendrick to like be there and just be taking, and she's a great fiddler and someone I respect. So she was taking notes on like the takes overall. That's so helpful. And then from, yeah, because like otherwise it's just a lot going on. The album that I was involved in that had the most moving parts, um, I originally was going to have the co-producer, I was going to originally have him play guitar and 
help produce the album. And he just said straight up to me, like he wanted to only produce because he didn't want to have to do what you're like. He wanted to be able to take notes and look at the whole thing and not worry too much about his own music at the time. And then he ended up overdubbing some vocals and some keyboards and all of that. But that was all after the fact. He didn't have to be a, an instrumentalist and run the session at the same time. So I, I think so highly of anyone. I know Dave Cobb will like often just sit and play rhythm guitar while working on like a Chris Stapleton song. It's cool to me that Wes can also be a banjo player while while overseeing, but it makes sense to have a note taker um, to help just like keep track of everything. Yeah, for sure. And I have to say, like, as a as a fan of Wes Corbett, your album has some of my favorite Wes Corbett solos on it. Oh, cool. I love his playing on bluegrass stuff. You know, like he's done so much prog- really progressive stuff, but I also love when he brings that progressive you know, ideas into a more trad setting. So I kind of, I just wanted to hear what he would do with some of these other players. Is he the only banjo player on the whole record? Yes. Yeah. He scored that, he scored that honor or like multiples of like everything else except bass, I think. But yeah, he and Jeff Bicker were the only people of their instruments. That's what I thought. Okay, cool. And how did you get connected with Jeff? Because I first saw Jeff tour with Sarah Jarose, and now I know he's Ricky Skaggs' bass player. Mm-hmm. But how did you get to know Jeff? I actually got to know Jeff. Um, we were on a gig in on Joe Val up in Boston like years and years ago. He was playing with Abby Hollander, and he was playing guitar. And I think for a long time I had no idea that he was like a great bass player. I just thought he was a, a good bluegrass guitar player. Um, and then he started you know, playing bass with Sarah and yeah. And I was like, oh yeah, he's also great at that. But yeah, so we were buddies for a while and it just, I tried to pick like a lot of people that I was friends with and close with to some degree or had some kind of connection with um, that, you know, weren't just entirely um, strangers just so I'd feel more comfortable, you know? Totally. And that makes such a difference. Like, I feel like as musicians, like we're, we're still humans. So like whether you're relaxed or not is going to come out in the music or whether you're excited or not is going to come out in the music. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, there's so many great like all-star um, recording uh, musicians here in, in Nashville, but, but, you know, if I don't know them, I, I wouldn't want to be in a room with, a you know, five or six people I didn't know trying to like make my album, you know, I think I'd be too nervous. Yeah. I, I feel that, but you, uh, you did get some of them on your I record. I did. And- <laughs> And yeah. and I think you might be on your way to becoming one of those people yourself, even if you don't if you don't feel it. Um, but you have you have Tim O'Brien on a couple of the tracks. Um, how how did you get to know Tim? Um, I got to know Tim. I think Mile Twelve opened for him a couple times at the station, and he was like nice enough to let us open for him like way back in the day when we were a very young band. I think I also met him at um, the acoustic music seminar that the Savannah Music Festival puts on. He was a teacher there. And I think we've just kind of run in similar circles in terms of like, he's one of the few bluegrass people who's also like pretty deep in the Irish music world. So we sort of have a lot of mutual friends that way and we can talk about Irish music too. So that's kind of cool. Are you still pretty connected to your Irish music scene that you've known for a while? Not that much. I mean, you know, I'm friends with them all on Facebook and stuff and I follow them, but like, yeah, I I just don't play that anymore. Um, So, you know, I'll run into a few people now and again, but yeah, I feel like there's only like room in my brain for so much stuff. And the Irish music stuff has gone way back there. I, I love I love Tim's contribution. He's singing Harmony with James Key on um, I Don't Know Why and Hello Trouble. Woke up this morning, happy as could be. Down my window, what did I see? Coming up my sidewalk, just as plain as day. Well, here comes trouble that I never thought I'd see when I went away. Hello, trouble. Come on in. Well, you talk about heartaches. Where in the world you been? I ain't had the miseries since you've been gone. Hello, trouble, trouble, trouble. Welcome home. Yeah, Tim is... I- I found him to be like one of the most generous people in the scene who could be like cold and standoffish because he's his credentials are just impeccable. Um, and yet he like he's been one of the most encouraging and welcoming people to me. And, and to, I think so many young people, he just like he understands that this music only goes on if you're nice to the younger people who are learning it and playing it as well. Yeah, he's just yeah, he's so nice and so down to earth and like, yeah, and, and he's the best. It's, it's super cool. Tell me about James Key, because I actually didn't know that name until I looked at your record. 
And then I, I've looked him up since, but for the listener and for me, who is James What and how did you get to know him? Yeah, James is awesome. James is a buddy who lives here in Nashville. Um, and yeah, it's a great, obviously a really great singer and plays mandolin and guitar. And yeah, I just got to know him through the through the Nashville picking scene. You know, he, he's got a weekly gig at D's with his band, the East Nash Grass, and they're kind of taken off these days. I saw they're booked at Romp next year and they're super great. Um, and he was running the bluegrass night at the American Legion hall down in East Nashville. And yeah, he's just like a, a guy about town. Um, who's an incredible singer. Um, so yeah. And, and a buddy. So it was cool to, cool to get to have him on there. When I was in Nashville making my record that Cinco recorded, Critter took me to that American Legion jam. I bet James was there. I never met him. We ended up in a picking session with David Greer playing like just a bunch of fiddle tunes. But I've been seeing the East Nash Grass, like their name is just exploding. Even I'm in Colorado right now, like even just on my social media feed, I'm just seeing like videos of them and them getting booked all over the place. And I love the I love the two of them singing together. Like and I and I dig the fact that, you know, you're a fiddle player and you made a record that isn't just for people who love instrumental music, that there's the singing songs are not an afterthought. They're like some of the high it's an album full of highlights but like some of the highest points i think are like james and tim singing together or like sarah jarose like blasting like singing her heart out on last train so i really appreciate that like you made an album that anyone who loves bluegrass is going to enjoy because it's not just one instrumental after another totally yeah like some of my favorite fiddle records are like those michael cleveland records and um that first aubrey haney record that have like all these guest vocalists and you know i mean and like hearing those fiddlers play with the vocalists like that's you know, interspersed with some fiddle tunes is like, is kind of what I want to listen to. So yeah, same. And speaking of speaking of that concept, if I think for me coming to coming to bluegrass kind of later on, um, Stuart Duncan has has like for a lot of people been my my guiding star for bluegrass fiddle and just for like tasteful playing with singers. And I, of course, love hearing him play instrumental music. But where he shines and where so many like Jerry Douglas, I feel like shines the best is on a break between, you know, the chorus and the next verse of a song or the little fill between one line and the next line of the, of the vocal part. And so I think it was, you know, very smart of you. Like if you wanted to, if you had to prove to an alien that you know how to play bluegrass, like <laughs> right, right. putting putting these great songs in there, it's like, yeah, she can, she can play behind songs and she can play these great fiddle tunes. Um, but it, it really is important as a bluegrass fiddle player to be able to do it all. Like it's not, it's not one or the other. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think this album was also a chance for me to just have myself record more traditional stuff that Mal 12 wasn't doing. Like, you know, some of those songs were songs that I'd pitched to Mal 12 and it was just like, wasn't the vibe. Um, so yeah, but I just, you know, I wanted more practice and like t- chances to record more trad sounding stuff. Well, it, it came out great. Um, I want to ask you just about a couple more um, and then my Patreon supporters are in for a real treat. Bronwyn has volunteered to give us like a eight to 10 minute fiddle workshop um, that'll be only available to the Patreon supporters. So I'm so excited for that. Before we wrap up, though, tell me about how you came to record that the duet with Wes, Happy Hollow, because this is actually one of my favorite old time tunes. And I was delighted to see it on the track listing and then to hear you improvise over it like a bluegrass player. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, that definitely came out of like the kitchen jams, (laughs) morning kitchen jams. Um, Yeah, that was one. I think I've known that one for a long time. I remember it was like really popular up in Boston when I was at Berkeley. And we were just trying to think of like something that was a little, you know, not not super standard, but would still still be fun to jam over. Oh, it it was a great idea. And I I wish more bluegrass players, especially when programming an album's repertoire or even just like a stage show would pull out some of these old time fiddle tunes that are they're just like they're like they're just sitting around waiting for someone to to play over them and they don't always you know they don't always have like a surprising chord progression but these are melodies that have endured for a while and so it's it's worth like pulling them down to the skeleton and then doing the improv that you're talking about um happy hollow is one of these it's from uh the playing of marcus martin who was from swannanoa north carolina and he played it like an aea c sharp tuning Oh, cool. But I just, yeah, I love I love the bluegrass treatment that y'all gave it. Happy Hollow. 
my favorite cuts is the Peter Rowan song, Last Train, that Sarah DeRose sings. How did this come about? I, I bet you've known Sarah for years through the Boston scene, but how did you get her involved and how did you choose Last Train? Yes. I mean, yeah, Sarah's like one of my, one of my, if not my favorite, like female vocalists out there. She's just incredible. Um, yeah, we went to school like around the same time she was at NAC while I was at Berkeley. So definitely jammed at parties and stuff. Um, yeah, I was just trying to, you know, so like, I think West just kind of encouraged me to ask some some more well-known people. And he was like, well, what's the harm in trying, you know, you know, maybe they'll say yes and it'll add more, um, you know, like excitement to the record or whatever. So so we reached out to her and yeah, I was kind of kind of shocked that she said yes, but like super grateful. And and then I was trying to spend a while trying to, you know, it's kind of a, a tough task being like, OK, now I have to find a song for Sarah to sing. Um, but I was just trying to find something kind of vibey, kind of minor. Like I love, you know, she does that stuff so well. It's such a good choice. And it, it reminded me, I had the very good fortune of sitting in the balcony while Michael Daves was making his Orchids and Viol- Violence, not Orchids and Violins, but Orchids and Violence record. Oh, cool. Um, that Sarah, like the bluegrass side of it was like Noam Pekelny on banjo, Mike Bubb on bass, Sarah Jarose, uh singing a bunch. And... I remember like getting to watch them track one or two songs and Brittany Haas was on fiddle. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we went and had ramen for a, a bit, but like that album was the first time I'd seen Sarah get to play a little bit more traditional stuff in a, like in a recorded context. Yeah. Um, whereas like her own records are moving in a, in a different direction, even though she knows the trad stuff so well. Yeah. And so hearing Last Train on your album just like brought me back to that place of hearing her just like sing her heart out on this more trad material and and remind remind me again of like why she is such a a, a brilliant musician, whether it's on her her new music or covering someone or singing like a really old song. Yeah, totally. I I always heard that like Tim O'Brien was one of her biggest like childhood heroes for singing. And it's it's kind of she is kind of like a female Tim O'Brien and the way she she sings bluegrass and yeah so to have I should have had them both sing together on something but next record next record <laughs> yeah yeah I think we just I think we just decided what your next record is <laughs> just, I'm just gonna furtively say Tim O'Brien Sarah Jarrow's album <laughs> going to end the episode by playing the entirety of Open Water, which is one of the tunes you wrote, and it features another just total powerhouse musician and singer, Sierra Hall. Uh, can you set this up for us? Yeah, totally. I love that track. Um, yeah, I wrote that one. That was actually the first tune I wrote for the album. I started writing it in the IBMA stairwell in 2019. I was like, had some free time and was trying to write a fast G minor tune that sounded like a Ronnie McCurry tune. So that's what I ended up with. And rather than get Ronnie, you had Sierra Hall play it, which... Yeah, well, you know, I just wanted to do something a little different. <laughs> well, it's it's such a great track. We're going to hear it in a second. But um, before we do, Bronwyn, thank you so much for doing this. It's a real treat to talk to you. And I'm such a fan. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This is awesome. <laughs> Thank you. 
Your Grid is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Matt Brown. Tim Brown provides crucial post-production assistance. Otto Allard is the designer. Max Allard created the soothing electric guitar music sprinkled throughout the episode. Tune in next time for my conversation with Joey Ryan of the Milk Carton Kids, and until then, relax your grid. (laughs) ¶¶